without further ado, I'd love to welcome um, someone I'm sure you've, just about everybody here has, will have read her book, and we're all so excited to have her here at the Book Festival this year, Raina Wynne. Welcome. Come and sit down. Okay. Look, Raina, this is it's just the most incredibly inspiring story, and I think that's why all these people are here today. And it's it's a story of overcoming adversity uh, that's really struck a chord with so many readers. I think you're on. You're okay. <laughs> you're okay. Um, and you've ta- I've got I've got my microphone stuck under here. <laughs> just sort this out. Um, it's, so you go, you and your husband Moth um, go on this amazing walk, a 630 mile walk on the southwest coast path, um, and it's much more than just a walk. It's a journey. It's a journey in a psychological sense as well as a physical sense, and through that journey, um, we as, as the readers become your, we kind of become your friends. We become your companions, and we feel like we're there with you every step of the way. Although we're maybe not sort of in the pouring rain and, and the howling wind and, and all the rest of it. Um, and I think you bring us in because you're, you tell us such intimate details about your life and sort of some of your innermost thoughts about this huge trauma that, um, that you've suffered. Um, and we also learn quite a lot about your, um, your physical state. You tell us about your bowel movements <laughs> and you tell us about how rarely you change your underwear. Um, and I think you, because you do this and you bring us so so closely into your life we do end up really caring about what happens to you and and to moth and i'm sure most of you when you finished the book um you felt like i did you felt you really wanted to know what happened next and how Raina came to from ending up in that little cottage and little apartment in paul ruin to here you are what are we five years later packing out huge auditoriums and stuff which is just amazing um so we'll start at the beginning. Set the scene. You lived in this beautiful, idyllic um, old farmhouse that you and Moth had renovated in Wales. You had your chickens and your cats and your two children who you'd brought up. And then your world collapsed. Yeah, yeah. So if we're going to talk about then, it's a good thing to go much further back, going, okay. going the very beginning of the book, to when I was about 18. And I was in a college canteen drinking a cup of tea, which if you've read the book, you know, I do an awful lot of. Um, and it was, it was sort of full like this. And there was a little parting between the people, between the heads. And across the room on the absolute other side, I could see this young man in a white shirt with dazzling blue eyes dipping a Mars bar in a cup of tea. And I thought, let's go on for me. <laughs> Strangely, it turned out to be so. And we, we created that idyll that we talk about in the book our, our perfect dream home in the hills and uh, and then unfortunately because we had a, um, a financial dispute with a lifetime friend was running in the background for uh, a while it unfortunately ended in a court case that saw us as being served with an eviction notice from that that dream home that dream that we'd taken 20 years to create and uh, we thought that that was the worst thing that could possibly ever happen to us. But in that same week, um, my husband Moth had uh, a diagnosis of a neurodegenerative disease that has no treatment 
and no cure. And I think it was then that we realised that not everything, not just everything that our past had been based on had been taken away, but our future too and everything that we thought that that would hold. Um, and, uh, and we were at the point where our lives and the whole structure of our lives had completely fallen apart. You, you said on, you write in the book that on hearing the diagnosis, you said, I didn't cry, I couldn't cry. If I did, I'd give in to a river of pain that would wash me away. I mean, that's, a, that's a really, obviously a really powerful reaction. And what I wondered was, what was Moth's reaction? He, he struck me through, you know, we get to know him over the course of the book as well. He struck me as someone who takes things in his stride more than you, but it's, it's a hell of a thing to be told. Yes, yes. I mean, it's a co complete shock because we thought he'd just got some sort of ligament damage mm. in his shoulder. Um, so it was an absolute shock. Uh, but he probably is a bit more pragmatic than me and um, and was facing it for what it was and, and thinking, you know, more about how he could construct his life over the next couple of years, which mm. seemed to be all that he was all being given. All that he given. would have left, yeah. Myself, I, 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 was, I was panicking about how could I possibly live a life without this man in it, mm. this man that had been in... I'd shared the whole of my adult life with. And you so were 50 years old at this stage. I was and 50. And you met him as a, as a teenager, as a teenager yeah. when you were 18. Yeah. So I, I couldn't even grasp the idea of a life without him there. So my reaction was to almost shut it out and pretend it wasn't happening. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, I mean, it was such a double whammy. And mm. again, you know, I think my, my reaction as a reader would be the same as just about everyone here. You kind of try and put yourself in that position to think, I cannot imagine how I would feel, you know, to, to lose my yes. home and then potentially be just, to be just on the verge of losing my husband at exactly the same time. Mm. I mean, you were totally overwhelmed. And, um, can were. you talk about your, your, your feelings? I mean, were your feelings just numb and you, you were blocking it out? Or Absolutely, yeah. I think numb. Numb is the, the best way to describe it. Um, shock, obviously, we were in shock because well, it was all so unexpected. Mm. Um, and then that led to a sort of numbness. I think of describing a book that I felt like a bee against a, against a window pane. I could see the real world out there, but somehow I couldn't touch it anymore. And you were in that bubble yeah, of just your I, own exactly. trauma. Yeah, yeah, completely, completely. And at that point, you had to decide what you were going to do. You were about to lose your house, so yes. you couldn't just let this wash over you. You had to do something. No, absolutely. And this court case that you'd been involved in had been sort of dragging on for about three years. Yes, it had. Oh. It had, yes. But we were absolutely convinced that we had what we needed to prove yeah. the, you know, prove our case, but it seemed that wasn't so. Um, and I think we, we desperately needed something to take us forward. There was no accommodation available to us with the local authorities and no hostel accommodation because they prioritised people, you know, people with other needs to ours. And uh, the only option we were left with was maybe sofa surfing for mm. a while, which, you know, if you've ever done it seems like the sure way to yeah. end a friendship. <laughs> yes, it was fine for a little while. <laughs> yeah, so I think I think it was that thought in mind that when we were standing under the stairs, hiding under the stairs at the very last moment in the house, the bailiffs were knocking at the door, about to change the locks. And we were just hiding there, not not thinking we were going to change what was going to happen or, or there was going to be some wonderful miracle, but just hanging on to that final moment, mm. those final 
seconds before we had to take that last step over the threshold, just knowing we'd never, ever go back. And it, and was, it, yeah. and it wasn't... So walking away, just walking away, wasn't something you'd sort of planned over those three years. You thought, well, if we lost the, lost the house, mm. we could do this. It literally was that split second. So tell us about that split second. It was in, in that moment, just as we were there under the stairs. And I spotted a packing case that was by the door waiting to be taken out. And on the top of the packing case was a book by Mark Wallington, 500 Mile Walkies. Uh, a book about a, a young man that walked around the southwest coast path with his dog. He obviously uh, cut it short a bit if he only made it 500 miles. Well, I've never quite worked that one out. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yeah, but it just seemed like the most obvious thing to do, just for the rucksack and go for a walk. I mean, it was, so it, it, it was a pretty <laughs> mad decision because mm. a moth was struggling. He, you know, he was in pain even putting, putting mm. his coat on, let alone, let alone putting on a rucksack that was going to be carrying his whole life for the next few months. Yes. You won't be fit. You, you, no. Um, um, no, maybe not the most responsible thing we ever what did. What did your children think? <laughs> um, very different reactions. We called them, obviously. Obviously, it was a really difficult time for them. So your children were students? Right? They were in the that final then. year of university, both of them, so in their last year of uni. Um, and they, they just had a double whammy, the same as we had. So uh, I called them to say we decided to take a very long walk. Why have I got my glasses on? I'm not reading. Um, I thought it was all blurred. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so um, I, uh, I called them to say, you know, actually, we're, we're going to just go for a very, very long walk. And my daughter was, what? How can you? You know, sometimes Dad can't even get off the chair. I'm going to buy you a mobile. You're going to keep it charged. You're going to phone me every day. And do not fall off a cliff. <laughs> Called my son. He was like, oh, wow, sounds great. Cool, Mum. Have a great time. <laughs> Kids. <laughs> and what's been the effect on your children since then, um, you know, of everything that yeah. you've, you've gone through? Um, because you, you talk in the book about how, you know, as mum, your mum, you're the one who makes everything yes. better. When they have a problem, they come to you. And you couldn't, you could no longer make things okay. No. No, well, that's the strange thing about being a parent, isn't it? You don't realise until you lose the house how much of, how much of being a mother revolves around that home. Mm, and it was at, their home where they yeah, had grown up. Their home. Whereas students in their final year of university, they would expect to come home, regroup, you know, mm -hmm. maybe go off travelling or do whatever students do. But that wasn't available to them, so they had to go straight out into the real world mm. get accommodation get a job get on with life um but weirdly enough they've turned into quite balanced human beings so yeah it turns <laughs> so out you've okay done a very good job <laughs> <laughs> and so let's talk a bit about the walk itself um <clears throat> the coast path passes a mile or so from from here um obviously the scenery stunning you know you talk about that but it's tough i mean i've walked all of the cornish section of the coast path not the whole of the southwest mm. but especially that bit by the north devon cornwall border where it's it's like that yeah. isn't it and you get to the top of one of these things think oh thank god for that and then you look down and think, oh now i've got to do it again and you were doing it with heavy packs on yeah. you were doing this a lot of the time in the pouring rain or the baking heat without water you were carrying all your stuff it was hard. Um, it wasn't the easiest thing we've ever done, no. <laughs> um, I think when we started walking, uh, although we got Paddy Dillon's great little guidebook that said it was 630 miles, not 500, um, I think we didn't realise um, 
what it meant when it said that the path had an ascent equivalent to climbing Everest nearly four times. <laughs> I think we just didn't equate that into yeah. every day and just how roller coaster that path is, that it just is relentless, absolutely relentless. And and to start with, you know, Moth was obviously it was finding it really hard, um, not just putting his rucksack on, but just getting in and out of the tent in the mornings was really difficult for him. Um, but as as we went on, then somehow that magic of the path started mm. to work its way in, and things started to change. Yeah. You've, you've mentioned Paddy Dillon. I mean, he was he was your other companion. It was you, Moth, and yes. Paddy, wasn't it? In, it was. In some ways. And I, I did write down a lovely quote about Paddy Dillon. And I looked him up, and he's written loads of books on long-distance walking. Mm. And um, you, you wrote, I'm convinced he's ex-SAS, he eats raw seaweed for breakfast, runs marathons when there's nothing on tea, and he wears camouflage pyjamas. Have you, have you ever met him? I have, yeah. <laughs> I think might have done <laughs> I was at an event in the Lake District, which is near where he lives, and um, I looked across the room and I thought, oh, I know that face from the fly, from the cover of the, <laughs> the book, and uh, so dragged him up on stage, and uh, he was absolutely the loveliest man, he was so sincere and absolutely what we thought he would be. Was it, and had he read the book? And had He, he read had the read the book because I'd sent it to him before it was published <laughs> just thought I'd better check seeing as I mentioned him quite yeah, a lot yeah. and um, I sent it to him um, in the evening and uh, two days later I got a, a huge email back from him saying I'm really annoyed with you why did you send me that I've lost two whole days work because I couldn't stop reading <laughs> so that was fantastic and he came to the event um with uh, an up-to-date copy of uh, the guidebook. And now, instead of just having the OS map that runs all the way through that we used, um, that has just half a mile inland, mm. so you really, most of the time, have no idea where you are at all, um, they've published uh, a separate sep set of maps that goes with it. So now, if you need to go to a shop, you can see that there is one. Some and was that as a result of yeah. your book? And yes, you say, you know, we, we didn't know where the nearest shop <laughs> yes, was. Yes, my own set oh. of maps, so I don't get lost. And But <laughs> unfortunately, he did say he doesn't wear camouflage pyjamas. Oh, so disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> so you're on this walk. And tell us what happens to Moth from being unable to get off a chair and you know, put his yes. rucksack on. What, yeah. what effect does it have on him? Well, like I say, to start with, he was finding it really hard. But uh, as we were walking, we probably walked about 200 miles when we started to realise that there, there was a change in the way he was moving. He's, he was a bit more sure-footed. He was putting his rucksack on his own without help in the mornings. And, um, and then we reached a beach where we really knew then that things had started to change. And would you like to read us that section yeah, from the sure, prologue? Yeah, I will do. There's a sound to breaking waves when they're close, a sound like nothing else. The background roar is unmistakable, overlaid by the swash of the landing wave and then the sucking noise of the backwash as it retreats. It was dark. Bear with me here. Bear with me here. I've picked up the wrong glasses. <laughs> OK, it was dark. Can I get it any further away? It was dark. <laughs> Barely a speck of light. But even without seeing it, I recognised the strength of the swash and knew it must be close. I tried to be logical. We'd camped well above the high tide line. The beach shelved away below us, and beyond that was the water level. <clears throat> it couldn't reach us. We were fine. I put my head back on a rolled-up jumper. Excuse me. 
and thought about sleep. No, we weren't fine. We were far from fine. The swash and suck wasn't coming from below. It was right outside. Scrambling through the green-black light in the tent, I tore open the flaps. Moonlight cut across the cliff tops, leaving the beach in complete darkness, but lighting the waves as they broke into a mess of foam, the swash already running over the sand shelf, ending only a metre from the tent. I shook the sleeping bag next to me. Moth, moth, the water is coming. Throwing everything that was heavy into our rucksacks, shoving feet into boots, we pulled out the steel pegs and picked the tent up whole, still erected, with our sleeping bags and clothes inside, the ground sheets sagging down to the sand. We scuttled across the beach like a giant green crab to what had the night before been a small trickle of fresh water running towards the sea, but was now a metre deep, deep channel of seawater running towards the cliff. I can't hold it high enough. It's going to soak the sleeping bags. We'll do something, or it won't be just the sleeping bags. We raced back to where we started from. As the backwash retreated, I could see... Almost see. <laughs> the channel flattened to a wide stretch of water only a foot deep. We ran back down the beach, the swash landing far above the shelf and rushing over the sand towards us. Wait for the backwash, then run to the other side of the channel and up the beach. I was in awe. This man, who only two months earlier had struggled to put his coat on without help, was standing on a beach in his underpants, holding an erected tent above his head with a rucksack on his back saying, run, run, run. <laughs> we splashed through the water with the tent held high and climbed desperately up the beach as the swash pushed at our heels and the backwash tried to draw us out to sea. Stumbling through the soft sand, our boots brimming with salt water, we dropped the tent down at the foot of the cliff. We'd walked 243 miles, slept wild for 36 nights, eating dried rations for most of that time. The Southwest Coast Path guidebook stated that we would reach that point in 18 days and directed us towards delicious food and places to stay with soft beds and hot water. The timescale and comforts were all out of our reach, but I didn't care. Moth ran up the beach in the moonlight in a ripped pair of underpants that he'd been wearing for five days straight, <laughs> holding a fully erected tent above his head. It was a miracle. It was as good as it gets. The light started to break over Portheras Cove as we packed our rucksacks and made tea. Another day ahead. Just another day walking. Only 387 miles to go. Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and have you, since then, have you discovered what it was about walking the coast path that, that made that incredible improvement in itself? I mean, was it the physical exercise? Is it the fresh air? Is it the endorphins? What do you, I think do you it's know? A, I think it's a combination of all those things. And, and doctors and specialists have suggested different avenues down which it, it might, have, might have had an effect. It could be to do with endurance training, which in effect is what we were doing was endurance every day. Um, and that's been proved to have a really beneficial effect in uh, Alzheimer's, which is a sort of slightly related disease. Um, other, other research shows that um, time spent in a natural environment um, and the chemical way in which we 
as bodies interact with plants could have some effect. Another doctor contacted me a few weeks ago and said, I think it's the diet or the lack of diet. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. <laughs> like near starvation. Yeah. Uh, it's now been proved to have some sort of effect on neurological conditions. So there is no absolute concrete evidence. But somehow but by something. complete accident, you hit upon something. the combination. Yes, absolutely. That was, that was what was helping yeah. to improve him, which is quite yeah, incredible. Yeah, that's doubt. So, um, for, for Moth, the walk was very much a physical therapy. And for you, it was a mental therapy, wasn't it? Oh, completely, yes. Um, and it was something that maybe gave purpose to your life at a time when you felt like your life had no purpose. Yes, completely. Um, to the extent that when you had to give up walking the coast path over the winter and spend time living in a friend's um, shed, which you helped to renovate mm. for her, it all came back, didn't it? So Moth's it did. physical it difficulties did. came back, your mental problems, all the worries and fears yes. came back to you. Can you put into words what it meant to you, walking, what, walking the coast path meant to you at that time? Well, We'd started out walking, obviously we were in a state of anxiety and anger and bitterness and fear about what the future mm. would hold, um, all of those things, as well as Moth's physical condition. Um, and we started out thinking that it, we would have time to talk through all those things and, and work out how to take our future forwards. Um, but we really didn't. All we did was to focus on taking the next step and the next step. And... So there was something about walking along that incredible strip of wilderness that is the coast path that became the reason to go on. It became the reason to go forwards, just to just to discover what was around the next bend and over the next hill. Became the shape of our days, mm. and I think I think it was as we'd reached Land's End, not just a a turning point on the path, but a real turning point for us. Mm. That I began to realise what the path had become. And that event that you've just read out, I mean, that was that was around Land's End. Wasn't that was, it? Just, it was just before Land's End. Yeah, yeah, yeah Portheras Cove. So that's that's just a, was for us just a few days mm. before Land's End. A few days after that, um, it was horrendous day. Probably far worse than today. It was mm. gales and, and horizontal rain and driving sand, you know, a real Cornish day. <laughs> and uh, we, we got to Land's End and the whole concrete wonder that is Land's End was completely <laughs> deserted. Even the pirates had gone home. No, nobody there. And uh, uh, a bus pulled up and we, we could have got on it. We, we were so tempted to get back on it and go back to sofa surf and, and put ourselves on a, a waiting list for some accommodation somewhere but as the, as the doors opened and the open top bus just poured water from the, from the upper floor came pouring out, out of the door we thought actually no and we carried on walking to, the, to those blocky granite cliffs that come just after the Land's End building what for me feels like the real Land's End mm. that real place where the weather barrels in and you're so absolutely at the very edge and it should possibly have been one of the worst moments of our lives because we've got just a Mars bar and maybe £2.50 in our pockets and, and then we put the tent up and obviously it was soaked so we just got two sheets of wet nylon between <laughs> us and Canada uh, and, uh, and it should like I say have been the lowest ebb but it it really wasn't. It was it was one of the most uplifting moments because we realised that that path had given us a 
a life, really, when we thought ours was virtually over. And above all else, a sense of hope, hope for possibility, a possibility that the future might hold something. Mm. Um, so when we went back inland and Moss Health deteriorated as quickly as it did, and we, we lost that sense of purpose, that mm. sense of how to go forwards, um, yeah, we felt as if we'd stepped backwards really, really quickly. Yeah. So when we came back to the path, found ourselves back on the path, it was, we were homeless again, still with nothing, but almost with a sense of relief to be back mm. to You were in a completely different position yeah. by then, weren't you? And you we knew were. what you were setting out for. We did, yes. In yeah. a way, when you set off from the north, um, on the, from Minehead, you, you had no idea what you were setting out to. When you came back, a year later yes. and set out from the south you knew yeah. what you were doing we and were, that it was right yeah. for you yes it was uh, as we got back to the path and, and just started walking again down that narrow strip of, of headland it really was a sense of almost coming home mm-hmm. and it, yeah. so that was a sense of coming home but a subject that comes up over and over and over again in the book is homelessness yes um, and it's probably something you barely thought of when you had a home when you no, no, I hadn't. I hadn't because we lived in in a very rural area uh, where we didn't really encounter homelessness, which you don't in r- most rural towns mm. and and countryside. You don't tend to come across homelessness, so we hadn't really given it a thought. Mm. So, uh, so we didn't really see ourselves as homeless because we were we were just us, just being us, but without a house. Yeah. So we hadn't really classified ourselves as homeless as such um so when we we did um encounter people and um and they asked how come we had so much time you know to walk so far and we we in the early days replied quite honestly well it's because we've lost our home we've got nowhere to go so we're just walking we were really shocked to find that people actually almost physically recoiled you know drew their dog in on a retractable lead or gathered their <laughs> children. It, it, it was a real shock to us to find that reaction. I think this yeah. is the thing that I took away from the book more than anything else is when you talked about this and this, this sentence, we lost our home and so mm. we're just walking, and all you needed to do was change one little word to change the reactions Absolutely. completely. And I thought that was such yeah. an interesting point that you make well, there. So what is the word that yeah. you have to change? So we did, we did that. We, we changed our story for when we encountered people simply because it, we didn't have to go through that really uncomf- uncomfortable scenario and, and neither did they, for that matter. Um, so when people said, how come you've got so much time to walk so far? We would say, well, we've sold our house, you know, just having a midlife moment and going where the wind blows. And then they would say, wow, inspirational. Mm. So the difference between lost your house, sold your house, and all the preconceptions and prejudices that we build around homelessness were were shocking to to encounter for the first time. But at some point you did start to feel like you were homeless, Yes, um, yes, I think you you talk about sort of people's reaction to you when you they're sort of seeing you as a tramp almost. Well, I think by the time we and you start by, to believe yeah. it yourself when you're getting other people's reactions that in way. A, Is in that a right? Way, yeah, yeah. I think I think possibly there was a point on the north coast where um, I was outside a shop just counting the last few coins that we got 
before we could go in and buy something. Um, and uh, a lady came around the corner of the shop and her huge dog caught my rucksack and sent the coins spinning out of my hand. Well, I dived across the pavement, hand down the drainage grill, because they were, they were precious. Um, and while I was lying there on the pavement, she started poking me with her foot, saying, you know, we don't have drunken tramps like you. Get up. We don't have people like you here. And um, I was still lying on the ground, thinking she can't be talking to me. You know, this can't be me. Mm. And um, as I realised that actually... You know, just a few weeks earlier, I could have been welcoming her into our holiday let. Yeah. She could have, I, I was a different person. My life was so different. I think it was that point where that sense of self, that real sense of who I was, not just in my life, but in mm. the wider society, I think it's really started to collapse at that point. Mm. So later, beyond, beyond Land's End, yeah. um, I think we were starting to not live alongside nature, but really as part of it, really as part of the, the wild environment mm. that we were in. And we were beginning to feel more at home in the natural world than we did in the human, really. That was something I found very interesting, and I did wonder, once you settled into a house yeah. um, at the end of the walk, how much of that feeling of being... A, being at one with nature, being more at home in nature mm. than, than, than in a house. How much have stayed with you, or have you, you know, how much have you yeah. re-surrounded yourself yeah. with material it, it, possessions, which you you kind of inevitably do yeah, to, you do. to, to um, a degree. It, it was very hard when we went back into back into a home, back into having to interact with people. Mm. I found that really difficult. Um, so I went through a really difficult spell there, and we we did find we put the tent up in a bedroom and. and <laughs> camped in the bedroom for a few weeks which sort of helped um yeah um but I think even now we've we we, we lived in that place um for quite a few years um and I've only moved this year um but even now I think my relationship with things has changed completely and I don't I don't need stuff to to identify with mm. I, I I don't feel through life, you, you gather things, don't you? you? You gather your things, you gather your memories and your possessions and, and you call them your home. And, um, and you think that you can't be without them. And in a way, they stop you doing things. They stop you Most definitely. being free to move or, or to go away and leave them because they become the structure of your life. Mm. And I think having lost all of that, um, I now feel quite reluctant to rebuild mm. to rebuild that framework around and you myself haven't gone back to your old and, and i now prefer an empty table to a full <laughs> one i think yeah. unless it comes to food and that's a different matter <laughs> entirely <laughs> and can we talk about moth as well because i think that that's the first question everybody wants to know yeah. at the end of this book we kind of think this you know this man um, who we've, you know, we've got so involved in his life, and we know he was only given what a year or two to live, yeah. and this was back in 2013. Yes. Um, tell us about Moth. Well, we did discover something miraculous almost for him on that path, and although his health isn't as good as it was when we finished walking, he's still in way better health than the doctors say he should be, and uh, still keeps defying the odds completely. He took his degree. But you know, we mentioned at the end, and he graduated last year. And uh, 
But during that time of, of working, you know, sitting with the laptop, working on his degree, it really started to take a toll on his physical mm. health again, really. So um, it, it sort of came to, to the summer and um, he, he wasn't on the top form. And I was, I've got this book at home. It's called 100 Epic Hikes. <laughs> and um, I was flicking through ones. it <laughs> and I found one that was only, yeah, only a few weeks long. <laughs> um, so, um, so we did fill our rucksacks and go to Iceland. That was this summer just for In us. September. Mm-hmm. And we went to Iceland and went into the uh, southern highlands and trekked back towards the beach on the south shore. And he started, you know, started str- at the beginning. It was a bit of a struggle with the rucksack. It was a struggle to walk. The days were short. Walking short, not time short. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but by the time we came to the final day, I couldn't keep up with him. He was romping ahead, so... So, obviously, I've just got to find another walking that book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And tell us about you as well, for, for your part. Um, you didn't start writing this book straight away, did you, once you settled in Paul no, Ruin? No. Can you tell us how, what your journey was after we finish, after we leave you in Paul Ruin at the yeah. end of the book? Well, I hadn't... We hadn't kept a notebook or a diary as we walked. Um, we just kept uh, pencilled notes in the margins of Paddy Dillon's guidebook. And it had been maybe two years after we finished walking that I started to realise it hadn't been just a physical walk. It had been a huge emotional journey for us as well. And I looked back through that guidebook and the pencilled notes were starting to fade. But as I read them, I could, I could almost see Moth, you know, sitting in the tent at night with his head torch on writing them. And I thought, I need to keep those. Mm. I need to keep those notes. So I started to type them up just as, just as notes. Um, but then as I did so and I was reading Paddy's incredible descriptions of the path and looking at that OS map that runs right through the book and I I found myself back on the path really Mm. I I could hear the gulls and I could smell the, the salt air and feel the wind and I thought I need to write this I need to write this so that when moths illness really takes hold and he starts to forget things I'll have something to put in front of him and say look at this remember what we did and I kept writing the notes and very quickly it turned into a narrative Mm. and then I just couldn't stop and had you was writing something you'd done in the past and had you ever wanted to be a writer was it something you did as a you know as a teenager was writing your thing or did it just as a child, a yeah, as a child, I thought, I'm going to grow up and I'm going to be a writer. And I'm going to have a penguin on the spine of my book. Oh, there he is. <laughs> but I think as a teenager, life took me down another route yeah. and, and I never did write. I didn't write anything. But you were, you were I mean, you're obviously very good at writing. It's, you must have known that. I think in, maybe, in maybe I've always had a narrative running in my yeah. head. Maybe that's the thing. Maybe I'd never just went to the shop, but maybe I just, I went through... You know, an incredibly crowded street and the clouds were billowing through. <laughs> you know, maybe in my head I'd always had a narrative running, <laughs> but I didn't write anything at all until I sat down to write this. And it has yeah. been phenomenally successful. I mean, look, yeah. look at this. But yeah. um, I recently read you're the number one bestseller this year at independent bookshops. Yes. 
Congratulations. Yeah. Well, thank I mean, you so much to everybody that buys it. You know. <laughs> so it's been so incredible. Tell us what, are you writing now? Are you writing some, something else? I am, yes. Yeah, yeah. There's been an awful lot of feedback from the book. You know, letters and messages every day uh, from people who connect with it in one mm. way or another. Um, and um, I think the publishers were quite keen to take that to what comes next, yeah. really. And so there was quite something to say about after the walk. So it's what comes next. Um, it's very much a nature book, I think, a lot, mm -hmm. of, a lot of nature, a lot of involvement with the natural environment and a lot of walking, but nowhere near as much as that. <laughs> yeah. And that's as much as you're able to tell us at Thanks the moment. so at the moment. Yes. <laughs> Any idea when this book's going to come out? Or um, is it still very much... Late spring next spring. year. Oh, yes. not too long to wait. Not too far, no. Okay. Um, now, I'm going to open it up to everybody else because I'm sure there's going to be absolutely loads of people who want to ask you questions. Okay. So we're going to try and sort out the microphones um, so we can have a roving mic. And Phil will try and um, sort out the... Um, the other microphone. <laughs> should we start? Should we start with a question? Has anybody got a question for Raina? And um, if you are asking questions, please wait for the microphone to reach you. Otherwise, um, we won't be able to pick it up in our podcast version. And hopefully, we'll be okay. We'll be okay. Okay. Um, <laughs> Go ahead, and we'll sort this out later. <laughs> you you mentioned what the people's reactions were when they realised you were homeless. What are you, if anything, doing now, or would you like to do or see change about housing and homelessness in the country at the moment? Um, can you hear me? Would it help if I swap? You don't need me anymore, do you? Hi, can you hear me now? Yeah? Okay. Um, yes, well, obviously, since the book's come out, there's been a lot of opportunities to, uh, to do things with local um, homelessness charities, um, which I, I have with St. Petrox, you know, our, our local uh, charity in Truro, which do an incredible job um, for the locality. Um, and um, so I've, I speak whenever I can for them. And, um, and uh, at any event that they, they ask me to go to, really. Um, but also, um, at the same time, there's uh, the Emmaus Charities doing some work in, in Cornwall at the moment. Um, Emmaus is sort of, it's a, it's a Europe-wide charity, but it's got the patron of um, Terry Waite in this country. And um, that charity creates communities for homeless people, communities where they can live and work together and find a way back into life without any prejudice or or any outside influence that might make them withdraw. Um, and they're trying to create a, a community at the Eden Project at the moment um, so that the people who live there will be able to work producing vegetables there and create a business there and a community. And it will help people from homelessness back into, back into normal life. Um, St. Petrox... Uh, in November are holding their big sleep out so that they uh, people can go and sleep 
in a sleeping bag at Eden Project and that raises funds for St. Petrock's, which is a fantastic thing. So I'm going to be there again. So come, definitely come. Um, but I think on a bigger scale, I think the most important thing with regards to homelessness is that we don't see people as statistics or people that are just a problem in a doorway, but that we start to see that homeless people are all individuals who come to homelessness through their own route, through their own lives, but they all have an individual story to tell. And not everyone is there through mental health and substance abuse issues. That exists. I mean, there's no doubting that exists, but there are thousands of people who are homeless for many other reasons. And I think the biggest thing that we can do to overcome the problems that we have and, and to to work as communities to solve our community homeless problem is to start to see that they are all individuals. Do you want to see any political or policy shift at a national level? I try not to get into politics too much at the talks, but to be honest, um, I sort of... All comes down to funding, always. And although more money has been put into homelessness recently, um, it hasn't really. It's just been moved from elsewhere within the within the sector. Um, so I think I think the communities are probably best placed to solve the issue. But what we need is funding, funding, funding. <laughs> I've been traumatised, not nearly as oh, no. much as you guys were, by the five-pound Tesco sleeping bags. Oh, yeah. And how you could never get warm or dry. Or No. So <laughs> I was wondering if you could talk about a little bit about that period when you sort of knew that when you found the guidebook and you had to put one foot in front of the other, sensed it, rather than being able to articulate it. I remember reading it with my book club and people were like, well, why didn't they take a thicker sleeping bag or a thicker jacket or whatever? And yeah. I, my my thoughts were that you guys were pretty much unable to coherently put that together or afford putting together. Exactly. We but were I, in shock. Yeah. We were absolutely in shock with what had just happened to us. And uh, and when you've gone through that sort of trauma, you're not, work, you're not thinking straight, are you? You're not being your most logical. So we were thinking lightweight because we can't carry the weight that is necessary to have... You know, decent equipment. So when we picked up a five-pound sleeping bag that said ultra lightweight and, and weighed about the same as a bag of pasta, we were like, fantastic, solve the problem. Not thinking that ultra lightweight, there's a reason for that, and it's because it's got no filling. <laughs> yeah, so that, that was the problem because we really were in shock. We, we probably weren't making our most logical decisions, really. <laughs> Yeah. Um, just wondering uh, which was your favourite stretch of the southwest path, and hoping it might be in Cornwall. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there, there are so many incredible points on that path because it is so varied. I mean, you go through, as as you mentioned, the, the incredible cliffs of North Devon, where you're just rising and falling, sort of eight hundred feet back to sea level, back up to 800 feet, and so exposed. And and in, in the south, you've got incredible tranquility behind Chesil Beach and, 
and just a smooth area of, of just like tranquil life. But for me, and the piece I always go back to, is the stretch from St. Ives round to Porthcurna. And I think there's something about being at the very edge that always draws me back to that. But another another really special place for us um, is really, really close to here, actually, the Rumps. Uh, and we absolutely loved it there. There was something, there was something almost connected to the past there. There was a, there was a feel of, of connection to human history, to, to, to the Earth's history, just to time and to nature. And there was something really special there, and, and we do go back. And it's not just the rabbits. <laughs> yeah, there, there is something quite magical about that spot, I think. Hi. Hi. Um, how did you feel about going back into like um, getting back into the world or society or whatever? Going back from the walk. Well, it's really it was really difficult. Um, as I mentioned before, it, it was really difficult to to not only to go back indoors after spending so much time outside and living in a wild environment and and just walking uh, and just never knowing what was coming the next day, whether we were going to wake up in a <clears throat> in a field where thousands of ladybirds were hatching into their first flight or or find ourselves on a foggy headland as the sun was starting to light the headlands and the seals were calling in the cove below. Not only to shut ourselves back inside away from that, but also to have to go out and interact with people who always, when you knew somewhere, want to um want to know your history and your backstory and how you come to be there and, and and we found so many so many problems one way or another going back into into ordinary life that um that I, I did find myself going back out onto the cliffs every day and just being there because that had come to feel like home you know I'd started out this walk feeling as if as if home was the stone walls that we lost and that was that was the last time I would ever feel a sense of home. But then time spent on that path led me to realise that home was more of a feeling than it was a house. It was what gave me a sense of safety and security. And for me that would always be my family, whether they were there on the path next to me or spread across the country, but also the natural world. And I think the time that we spent on that path, I did come to see that path as home, as my safe place. And um, so I did retreat from, from the house to the path very regularly. <laughs> yeah. Hi, yeah. Hi. Oh, God. <laughs> I think that um, we suffer, we've come as a book group and we were really inspired and I think started doing coastal path walks. And oh, it's, fantastic. Um, <laughs> and obviously Cornwall is amazing. Yeah. Um, there was just one thing that's, that kind of I had a difficulty with in the book, I have to say, yeah. was just 
because you very succinctly talk about that feeling of people recoiling from you and you know sort of there for the grace of God go I and in a way that you could have been welcoming somebody into your let but towards the end you mentioned about refugees and that the prioritization of housing for refugees over people who live in this country and I think obviously that's the case in many local authorities at times but I just wondered if do you see it almost in a sort of a global sense that that kind of loss of home and loss of identity as such and that's that walk of search for your next time and your next identity sort of does it does it now for you make more sense in a global sense sort of five years on or I think so I think it's not just a national problem is it it's it's a worldwide problem yeah and and I think that's what I was trying to say there I was trying to say that that sense of loss of your home is no different if you've just lost your semi in England or you've you've lost your farm in Syria that sense of of losing everything that is your life is the same this country, we don't have the added horror of being bombed at the same yeah. time. Yeah. But but what I was trying to say was that sense of loss and that sense of need for shelter is actually the same. Yeah. Um, I think that's what I was trying to put across there. And it, I was just sort of listening to the way that you, you talk about the walk and it's almost yeah. like that sense of walking towards something. Well, I think so. I think... I think when you've, when you've taken away the whole framework of your life then the absolute basic reasons to go through a day are gone. Yet you, know, you, you haven't got to make your breakfast because you haven't got any. You haven't got to clean the house because you haven't got one. You haven't got to change your clothes because you haven't got to change your clothes. You, can't, you, you haven't got to go and wash because there's nowhere to wash. It, it's the real basic fundamental structure of how we live. When you take that away, then, then to walk is something that gives you a reason. It gives you a purpose. And that is the building blocks for rebuilding yourself and that sense of who you are. And when that, you've lost that, that's a really, really difficult thing to get back. And, and the walk, whether it's around the coast path or whether it's out of your country into another one it's a sense of purpose it's a sense of finding a way forwards I think that translates from one to the other I think yeah Um, thank you. I found it a very powerful read. And one of the things that um, I also was um, stayed with me was the way in which when you met up with other um, homeless people on the walk, mm. that your capacity to, to make contact with them and to share what tiny amounts you had um, was, was just very striking. Um, and, and I reflected uh, as I finished the book that my... My, um, I, I had always thought I was empathetic towards people who were in that situation, who'd lost us, who were homeless on the street. And I thought after reading your book, 
oh, you really weren't. Actually, you, you haven't um, uh, really thought what it meant. And so whilst I had slightly embarrassedly <laughs> popped some money into a cup left on the street, I hadn't ever had the courage to make contact with, with the people that were there and realizing how much it meant to, to make human contact. Yeah. And so that's one of the things that's changed for me because of reading your book, that in that situation now I behave differently. Um, although in a, a city situation where you have so many homeless people, yeah. I'm still left in that same yeah. situation of not knowing how to cope. Um, I don't know whether there's a way through that, but... Um, uh, I, I don't know, because because in a city situation, it is, it is so numerous. How, how do we cope? And and the more I've looked at, at these things, I think the best thing we can do is to try to is to try to work as a community to 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 improve things for our our homeless. You know, um, like St. Petrox have, have been running this campaign to end street homelessness in Cornwall, and I, I talked to them about you know how how can we do this? You know how how can we as a county actually end street homelessness? And uh, they've said that actually we to to end our rough sleeping problem in the county we need 150 beds. It's nothing. That is actually nothing as a county. But what it needs is accommodation to be available for people. It needs landlords to take uh, to take a step of faith really. And realise that that taking in a homeless person into their accommodation is actually so much more than just opening a door. Actually, they're saving a life. And those people are supported by the charities and it's not a risk to them to let them in. It's not a risk to their property because the charities are there as a safety umbrella for the landlords. Um, so I think, I think, wh when you think about the homeless problem as a as a large statistic, it, it's a really difficult problem to solve. But if you think about it as a localized issue, it's actually not that hard. Um, and I think, wouldn't that be a fantastic thing? Is if as a county we could we could say yes, we have one of the worst homeless street homeless problems outside of London, but as a county. We can solve it. We will solve it. That, that would be an incredible achievement, I think. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I think our time is up. Raina Wynn, that was absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure for me to be able to ask you questions, for you, I'm sure, also to be able to ask you questions, and for us all to be able to listen to you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.